0: June the 12th, 2016, lecture discussion number 243, let me repeat that, 243, yes, it is indeed June the 12th, did I say the 2nd, I hope I said the 12th, 2016, and it is lecture 243. For those of you on the internet, both of those are true, and we have been absent for two weeks, in case you've been wondering. It's king salmon season here in Alaska, which is the primary cause, and, but I have been sick again. Apparently, I've entered into that phase of life where I fall from ladders and scaffolding and the cold and flu virus finds me to be hospitable, and there's nothing I can do. So, I've invested in pro- protective devices. Of course, I take my medicine. That seems to be working well, good thing I have that. Man, consider how sick I would be without it. But I've invested in uh, plastic armor coupled with gummy bear immunity support supplements. I didn't know they had gummy bear immunity support supplements, but they do. And I'm very happy about that. We'll see if my plan uh, comes to fruition, has value in the weeks to come. I need to interject here that Bill the Cow, for those of you in the vast Internet audience, and, and you are vast and you are on the Internet, uh, Bill the Cow is also known as Rocket Man, and he will be on the Travel Channel uh, with his rocket, and you will know why he is Rocket Man. Uh, I get all kinds of questions about, especially from Sharon from Texas. So Sharon, I expect you to find the Travel Channel where you will see Bill the Cow as Rocket Man. He has built an extraordinary uh, motor home trailer type thing that is really, really cool. So I just throw that out there just to let you know we actually exist. And we're not some voice, just in the ether. Okay, before we return to the rebellious son... And this is the list from Deuteronomy 22. The rebellious son is right in front of Deuteronomy 22. It is Deuteronomy 21, the end of Deuteronomy 21. And also Deuteronomy 23 uh, speaks to this list as well. But before we go back to the rebellious son and the blue tassels, which is what this is, and the man gathering wood in Numbers 15, I thought we would benefit from a brief venture into the thoughts of those whom the media apparatus considers be wise. If you have been watching the media today, or recently, not today so much, it should be certain by now that whomever the contemporary media has deemed to be sagacious should be immediately discarded as such. In other words, if the media appoints somebody to be your superior intellectually, then you should immediately Question that, because the chances are that they are the opposite. Okay, they are going to be the opposite. There aren't any chances. With that in mind, I present to you the philosophical meditations of Elon Musk, the CEO of Tesla Motors. I had to study Nikola Tesla in physics class, electrical physics. Um, I suspect that his uh, name is being misused, but we'll get into that maybe later. Uh, this is a segment I used to like to call, Things We Learned From Television. Uh, Mr. Musk, and quite a few others, as coincidence would have it, your, your media, your, your television shows, your movies, recently all of that stuff has proposed that physical reality is what? What are they calling the physical reality? They're calling it a computer simulation you Have been listening to this? One can't seem to escape the proposition. It appears to be very popular among the elites now. Clearly, they intend for us, we are the great unwashed, to be exposed to their novel idea. They think it's novel, that the physical reality, that all of us are not real, but we are inside a computer game, for lack of a better way to put it. And they think that this is new thinking. It's not. It's not new sprung to anyone but them. It is merely ancient, everyday, common monism, but uh, I'll get to that in a minute. Anyway, Elon, can I call him Elon? We're not close. I don't think he knows me, so I don't know if it's proper for me to refer to him by his first name. So I, I won't. Elon considers that since computer simulation technologies are rapidly advancing, that is, he believes it's a foregone conclusion that the eventuality that these simulations will become indistinguishable from reality. What I mean by that is that they're getting so complex, you can look at the computer games now. From my generation, it has been made clear, I think Mr. Mr. Elon said so, My good friend, Elon, he said that my generation started with Pong, and now we have these games that are producing graphics that are very realistic. At some point, I can imagine that the movies will no longer be with professional actors other than maybe the voices. All of the physical activity will be done with computer-generated systems. So they're concluding that with this kind of trajectory, it's so fast that it's happening, computers are becoming more and more uh, complex. It is reasonable to conclude, Elon says, to assume that we are all currently living in a simulation. In other words, he is saying that someone, somewhere that we cannot imagine, an, an alien intelligence... They never say God, by the way. I am kind of satisfied that they're recognizing that there's something about the physical reality that is mysterious. That encourages me. They are beginning to recognize that the microscopic level, the physical reality, isn't what we think it is. That it's governed by a ubiquitous law system, a universal law system. But it may not have the reality that we think it does. And they're right about that. Quantum physics has made that without dispute. So I'm glad that they're recognizing there's something suspicious about the physical reality, but it is not a computer simulation from an alien life force, which somehow they think that that is the logical end to their thinking. And that we are all currently living in such a computer simulation. I'm trying to utilize as many of Elon's own words as possible. Hopefully I've done so with acceptable, acceptable accuracy. Probably not. This is what he asked. He said, is there a flaw in my argument that the physical reality as we know it is actually computer-generated graphics? Is there a flaw in my argument? And that's an excellent question. I'm glad he asked it. I will endeavor to provide an answer for Elon, my good friend. Yes. The answer is yes, there's a flaw in your argument. There is. And actually, though his question is excellent, Elon's question is also insufficient. He should have asked this way. He should have asked it this way. I will help him. I will correct it for him. How many flaws are in my question? Are in my argument? Now, that for that, I'm going to need a lot more time. I I'm Remember, I'm this is going to be an all-day sucker. I'm glad you all brought lunch. I'm going to have to restate his premise and bring it to its foundational form. Let's do that with the tried and true traditional cliffside methodology, which is to ask Elon a lot of questions about his argument. I'll start with this. Why me? Because this is me. Why am I so certain? That no computer will ever be manufactured that can replicate human intelligence. I know you see the computers that win at Jeopardy and win at chess and win at uh, whatever game you wish. But they are not replicating human intelligence. And I am positive, beyond any possible argument or doubt, that they will never achieve this. You should ask again, I'll re-ask it, why is the one-eyed fat man so sure? By the way, being sick, I lost 10 pounds. I'm not as fat as I was. That's probably good news for everybody in my household. I'm working on getting back to my typical circumference, though, as I get better. Let me ask another question. If the entire contents of a human brain, your brain, my brain, everybody in this audience today, pick pick one of you, if the entire contents of a human brain could be captured and placed inside a computer system, what exactly has been accomplished? Apparently, this is uh, a, a hypothesis of a recent Hollywood production. Whenever I bring the word Hollywood into the discussion, you automatically should think what? That's right, idiots. You should immediately just go right there. All movies are made for 14-year-old boys now. We've determined that to be the case. I'm not alone in that conclusion. But there's a Hollywood production, it was called Transcendence, not to be confused with Transcendentalism, Transcendentalism. I can barely say that, I need more medicine. Transcendence. Anyway, I've not seen transcendence. No surprise there. I doubt any of you have seen it. Hollywood is bereft of understanding of the material and the spiritual. They have no idea. They will never have any idea. It is Spiritual wisdom is not in Hollywood. Ask why someday. Where do you get spiritual wisdom? It is only one source of spiritual wisdom. That is that is the one who wrote his wisdom down and placed it in his word. And you have to understand that at the deepest level in order to produce it yourself. In the sense of being able to explain it to somebody. Hollywood has none. Don't spend your money on the movie Transcendence. I recommend ice cream. Ice cream seldom disappoints. I can't come up with the time that it has disappointed me recently. If someone, someone's, yours, mine, our entirety, our personality, our memory, our emotional characteristics, our reasonings were somehow transferable, placed into storage, because that's what it would be, right? It would be stored inside of an electronic system. So you were able to take all of my personality, all of my uh, little uh, eccentricities, my memories, my emotions, characteristics, again, all of my thought processes, and you put them into storage. What have you achieved besides storage, if I grant you the hypothesis? I just repeated the question, the same question, a different form, didn't I? In case you were wondering, and hopefully you have deduced where I'm headed. Is the copying of a human brain, again, conceding that that's possible, which I say it's not. But let's go ahead and be friendly to Elon, my new friend, and say that I'll concede that it's possible. So I'm being unjustifiably polite for just a minute. Is the reproduction of a human brain and its subsequent storage inside of a computer achieving the transference of the person? Have I transferred the person? Is it not logically possible at a thought experiment level to imagine that the contents of our brain could be stored? If the, if I took the story or the brain in its entirety and stored it, what happens to the person? Let's assume that I'm able to do this, and not and the body is surviving. So while you're alive, I take I hook you up to some kind of Hollywood apparatus that no one can ever possibly conceive, and I get your brain over into a computer that no one can possibly ever build. What ha- build? What has happened to you? You're still in the body, the, or did you go with the storage, the information? Now you know why I like information. Theory. I hope you recognize this is the Swinburne two-brain experiment from a couple of years ago. How many were here when I talked about Richard Swinburne? Never raise your hand in this audience. Don't do that. Richard Swinburne and another gentleman whose name escapes me came up with the idea that if I um, could theoretically have a human body still alive and another human being uh, completely intact, I could theoretically take half of the brain of this human being and move it to the other body that had no brain at all and reconnect it neurologically. Uh, I have two people, I have two functioning bodies, each with half a brain. And his question became, where's the person? And we all agree that if I cut off my hand, of course, I'm still here, right? If I cut off the arm, I'm not. If I move the arm and the hand to another location or the foot or the nose, some people are saying, please try this kind of surgery as soon as possible before it's too late. I have a collection for my plastic surgery fund. Those of you who'd like to contribute. I'm, of course, appealing to the Internet audience and the Coca-Cola company. Anyway. Swinburne pointed out, obviously, I can take parts of my physical body and remove them and not affect my personhood. How much of my brain? He ultimately proves that my mind is not attached physically to me. I'm sorry, to the body. Does that make sense? In other words, the mind does not follow the body. So where is the mind? If you think it through, just start with the nose and the ear. The mind does not follow. If the nose and the ear are removed, the mind does not go. If the liver is removed, does the mind go? So, how do I have, how do I assign the mind to a brain that's just purely a physical device? So, what we're talking about here is consciousness, isn't it? Is it possible, ever possible, to reproduce, to duplicate, to copy human consciousness? And my answer is no, never, never, never means never. This is the concept of artificial consciousness. And now you have to ask the obvious question immediately. Is there such a thing as artificial consciousness? How would you describe artificial consciousness, I'm submitting to you that they're contradictory on their face. Now, some disagree with me. I know who would do that. But they're out there. There's, there's one of them somewhere. I hope he calls. Or she. They believe that your consciousness is emergent or dependent upon your physical structure. Uh, that's logically indefensible. In other words, your consciousness is really a physical process that comes out of your brain and then takes it over. That's how they think. That's the common view. And they, of course, uh, they, they say the consciousness is at its base of a uh, physical process or a source. And that's monism. Those are the monists. Again, monism is people that say you are physically only. Dualists are people that say, no, you have two uh, substances. One of them is physical, the body, the brain mass, if you will, all the physical attributes. The other is a non-physical component, which is your mind or your soul. So, consciousness is not physical. If you think it is, all you have to do is try to describe it in physical terms. How much does it weigh? Where is it located? How big is it? What is it made of? Is it particle based? Can it be reduced to particles? Does it function like anything physical? Ever. How how much does love weigh? Your idea. Some people have big ideas. I always ask them, are they as big as a house? What's the diameter of your idea? What's the cross-sectional analysis? Consciousness is not physical. Computers, however, are physical, aren't they? Perhaps they're able to imitate human attributes, but can physical devices comprehend the reasonings that manifest those attributes? Does that make sense? I hope it does. I'll keep going. Welcome once again to the mind-brain problem, right? That's what we're talking about. How much is the mind and how much is the brain? How do they interact? How does the mind control this mind? Essentially, this electrical chemical device that's brain. How does it do it? How does it read what's happening in the brain and put intentionality to it and put meaning to it? See, I have mental properties versus physical properties. Mental properties are completely different than physical properties. You can never say that they're the same. It's impossible to describe them with the same words. Computer simulations, you see, regardless of the advancement of the computers, it has to be able to recognize and comprehend the reasoning of the human mind in order to duplicate it. Reasoning, intentionality, assigning meaning, those aren't physical. So you're asking a physical device to make something that is not physical or to imitate something that is not physical. Just take a, uh, an animal mind. I have three dogs. They are what we call a cabal. Now, they operate individually. and They have a conspiracy against me at almost every uh, opportunity. They plot, they scheme, they manipulate. And they are very, very well organized. Diabolical, some would say. So, how can a computer, a physical device, even take an animal's mind, which is incredible to compare. That animal can see a frisbee going through the air, anticipate its trajectory and its speed, make its body respond, intersect that device, Hetch it in the air. And and it has to take the the images which are photon-level images going through receptors that are one-dimensional and convert it into three-dimensional. How does it do that? How does a computer... Take something, not just the outward, the visible and the audible, or the photon-based, if you will, or the pressure oscillations, which is sound. Sound is just pressure on on a medium, right? How does a computer take that which is unseen and copy it? What does your thought look like? What does your idea look like? What color is your love? How does a computer figure out how to replicate something it cannot see? In the sense that computers would be able to figure out what this thing is. It's the unseen, the unheard, that which cannot be experienced physically. You're asking a physical device to copy something that cannot be experienced physically. Uh, The human thought process. That which is the originator, if you will, of the physical, the mind. In other words, all of your physical activity comes from a thought first. A thought is not physical. I think, and therefore my body responds. Now, I know you're going to say to me, I have seen teenage boys. They never think, and yet they still move. That's not true. You are not able to see that thought process nor understand it. Now, you think a computer is going to be able to figure out what a 13-year-old boy is doing? No. Inside his mind that he can't see. In the sense that our minds are the causation of our physical acts and our responses. It's the mind that generates these things. And, and how is a physical device going to copy or imitate or mimic it? It's impossible. The mind is impossible to duplicate. So ultimately, thoughts are responsible for why physical properties occur. Okay, so let's back up a little bit. You're going to ask, why are you wasting your time on this again? We have important things to do. As Bill Rocketman Cow said in the pregame, our culture is collapsing. And it is collapsing because we don't know anymore what we are. We are a spiritual being inside a physical device. And we are going to be held accountable. No one believes there's any accountability anymore. No one believes there's any judgment anymore. The Bible says, oh my, my. There is. I will hold you accountable, your Creator says to us. All of these little things are attacks on the fact that we are physical and spiritual units and have been designed that way. Obviously, I'm firmly, unmovably in the position that the mind is distinct from the brain. The brain is only physical. Computers are likewise only physical. They're silicon, germanium, arsenic, they are metallic devices, they are electrical connectivities, they are power supplies, etc., The mind or the soul exists outside of the physical and is not subject to the physical. In the event you think your mind or your soul will cease to function upon your physical death, you're wrong. All it needs is an outside power source. Jesus Christ made sure he identified himself as the one who provides the power. The attributes of the soul are completely non-physical. Consciousness, awareness, again, assigning meaning, predictions, intentionality, establishing meaning, free association of thought. That's the most important, frankly. The fact that you have a free will tells you that you are a spiritual being. The monist, the evolutionist will tell you you don't have a free will. I know you do. How do I know you do? Because I know I do. Now, it's limited. And I'm assigning my free will characteristic to you. I know I'm me. at self-awareness. I know that you know you're you. Because I'm assigning my self-awareness to you. We all have it. Some will say that we don't even have that. But they're wrong. Free will or free association of thought. Very important. Just a list of Few of the mind-souls' capability. None of what I said are physical events. Thus, the most obvious of the obvious question. How can a physical device possessing none of these characteristics reproduce a mind or a soul? How can a computer create a soul? How can it invent one? How can a computer even conceive of a soul? I just now consider your feelings and your emotions. What process is generating your feelings? Right now you're feeling bored. It's okay. Everybody does it every week. What is generating that boredom? You notice half the audience laughed. You know why they laughed? Is they are bored. That's the way it is. That make, that's what makes it funny. Comedy is hard for you folks on the Internet. I have to talk to them. I should mention that John and Norma uh, sent us a wonderful package. Hi, John and Norma. Gee, I hope I'm right that they're from Pennsylvania. Uh, we really appreciate it. It is in the back awaiting uh, us to uh, participate in its significant devouring. We are called the congregation that never stops eating on the end that 's what they call us. They really do unceasingly eating congregation they say they 're right, and every now and then people send us care packages they 're worried about us. They think we 're undernourished. That is my plan phenomenal how some of my ideas work anyway john and norma and and i'm amazed john is another one of these deep deep thinkers out there on the internet and i'm just thrilled that you're out there and uh, i'm sorry that i haven't gotten back to you as cleanly as i could and i will soon but soon is a relative term john Okay, but consider feelings and emotion. What process generates your feelings? As some insist, they say it is just simple neurological activity, activation. It's the interactivity of brain cell structures. It's chemical, electrical. Well, then ask the most obvious question then. What causes these neurons to fire? And then what is able to figure out what they say? Explain the causation of the brain activity. Who commands this system? A physical solution doesn't exist. Consciousness is not a byproduct of physical events. And therefore, artificial consciousness cannot be created. God did that on purpose. He's on mission. He's outside of time. Remember, did he know that someday some idiot, never mind Elon, don't take it personal. Would get up and say that he could create artificial consciousness? Did he know that? Yeah. He made sure you couldn't. By a natural system that only he can do. Consciousness is God-given. There is no other explanation for it. It cannot evolve from a physical process. Evolution is a physical process. A no possibility you can evolve consciousness. Anyway. Simulate something requires that someone know what the something is. If I'm going to copy something, I need to know what it is I'm copying. Mankind can't even define consciousness. And we have no understanding of consciousness. We can describe that it exists. That's all we can do. In that sense it shares a place with gravitational phenomena. We don't know what gravity is or how it works. We could just say that's what it does. Rene Descartes famously established a fundamental truth. He said a paraphrase, he said Cogito ergo sum, but I'm going to change it. I have thoughts, he said, therefore I have existence. Also, I think, therefore I am. Right? You all had seventh grade philosophy. Cartesian algebra. Very smart man, Rene. Computers don't think they're just simply processing devices. They have no I am to them. Ooh. My, my, I know, I sound like Joe Kenda. They have no I am. We Christians, those of us who have read any scripture, know who says he's the I am. He's telling you that I am in the present tense. That means I have created time and I'm always in the present. I am always I am. We are never I am in that sense. But he tells us that he is the source of I am and he's the source of existence. He is continually telling us he is the I am. You can't get through the book of John without him saying to you on every page, I am, I am, I am, I am, I am. Every time you see Christ say I am in the Bible, capitalize it. And he never says I am he. That's what translators put in there. He always just says I am. It's an Exodus 3 reference, right? Existence has to be breathed into us. No computer can replicate it. It's silly to think so. Okay? So, as you go through your week and you see this nonsense sprout up, just realize, oops, how do you deal with consciousness? Hey, here's our list from last week. Uh, Deuteronomy 22. Right prior to that again is the rebellious son that has to be executed for being a rebellious son. God says he needs to be executed. Most people will read that and go, oh, God's so bad. Poor little kid. He just doesn't want to mow the grass. God's going to blow him up. I, I have uh, Dr. Peter. I can't give out his name. Hi, Doctor. He's from Australia. He wrote recently and offered his usual insightful commentary. Essentially, the good doctor pointed out that in Australia, there is a complete disinterest in Scripture. Complete. He said almost absolute. i paraphrasing him. The Bible has been discarded in Australia. Unbelief is assumed. It's not even discussed as a possibility now is what the good doctor said. And I absolutely believe him. I suspect this is the condition of Europe as well. Here in the United States, we're lagging behind. Bill Rocketman Cow said in the pregame that we follow most of Europe, but primarily Great Britain. We lagged them by maybe 30 to 50 years as goes that area of Europe, the English-speaking portions, that will also be our fate. And I suspect that that's going to be, uh, uh, Australia is slightly, if not, uh, I think slightly ahead of us as well. Here in the United States, at least in my experience from my mail and from my interactions with people that um, that take me on, I guess, for lack of a better term, uh, what I'm seeing What I'm seeing might be just an Internet actuality. I should make concede that point. It makes it seem what I'm experiencing as if it is significant still in the United States that people regard the Old Testament in particular as proof that Christianity is a hateful belief system and that God is evil. That I come across quite a bit. Uh, I'd say predominance of my hate mail comes from people who accuse me of producing a Lecture that is based on a hate system, the Old Testament. Uh, God uh, addresses this. He says the contrary. And he also says clear Isaiah 520. You will, you will see people who cannot tell the difference between good and evil. In fact, not only can they not tell the difference, but they invert them. They will call good evil and evil good. He is always good. If you ever come across anything in the Bible that leads you to conclude that he is not good, you are horrifyingly in error. And stop, hit yourself with a hammer, and read it again. The more you conclude that God is evil, the harder you use the hammer on yourself. Okay, that's the rule. If you approach it that way, eventually you'll see that he's not evil at all. In fact, you have completely misunderstood, and you have fallen for traditional monistic thinking. That's how all of this fits together, which sort of makes me uh, have a plan. Anyway, they say the Old Testament in particular, and they attack it as proof that God is hateful. And he's violent and he is arbitrary. And we just happen to be centered in this discussion on blue tassels. This is Deuteronomy 22 and it describes what blue tassels mean. Blue tassels, if you remember, and some of you don't, uh, originates at Numbers 15, 32 through 41. I have a man gathering wood on the Sabbath. And that is so evil that God executes him orders him executed, and all of Israel takes him out and stones him to death because he's gathering wood on the Sabbath. And to memorialize that so it never happens again. Everybody in Israel, they have talits, They're a headdress, if you will, that replicates or tries to give you the impression of the tabernacle of Moses. And their Talits have these blue tassels now on the bottom, fringes, if you will. They're still there today. If you found a Jewish talit it would have those blue tassels. Those blue tassels are to remind Israel of the grave wickedness that the man-gathering wood was attempting to do. And I've made the case that the rebellious son that was executed in the man-gathering wood... Have a relationship, okay? So there's your list in Deuteronomy 22. Hopefully you remember it. We'll go back to it next week. The ox and the sheep goes astray. Don't hide yourself. Remember all of that? Okay. This is Ananias and Sapphira. This is the other Daniel's fault. Not Daniel, but the other Daniel. Okay, in case you were wondering. You might ask, who is the other Daniel to the other Daniel? See, now, back to consciousness you go, right? Thank you for laughing. That one person that did. Okay. So that's well how we got here. Deuteronomy 22 provides the initial explanation of the blue tassels. What that man gathering wood was doing and why he put blue tassels in Deuteronomy 21, 18 to 23, that's the rebellious son, also adds key information to the meaning of the blue tassels because it explains Deuteronomy 22. So I have both the uh, man gathering wood. It's not a coincidence. And the rebellious son, they're commonly brought forward by the usual advocacy groups as examples of biblical barbarism. They say these are two innocent guys just out wandering around. One of them doesn't want to mow the grass. The other one wants to build a fire and roast marshmallows, and God kills them both. If you have that position, you are so far from what's really happening. And they usually bring these two up in concert with Leviticus 18, 19, and 20. Now, there's others, but I get these, these a lot. Obviously, I respond when approached by someone with this perspective, uh, with what is certain in the context. The man gathering wood and the rebellious son must have been engaged in murder. And it had to be mass murder. Both of these men are attached to blue tassels. God himself says these are capital offenses. Now, I I don't want to get into this subject today, but we've had a mass murder began in this country, in Orlando. An act of evil by a man of evil. If you had the opportunity to stop him, I believe everyone here would stop him. And trust me, if I had been anywhere near that area, I would not have been defenseless. There's one great big difference between Alaska and Orlando, Florida. Alaskans are not defenseless, nor will we ever be, I believe, plus we have water, that's always good, and natural refrigeration systems. It snowed here a couple of weeks ago in June, it was hilarious. God intervened and stopped these two men because they were profoundly evil. It's your job to figure out how they are evil. And one of the clues he gives us is that you memorialize the evil that they were trying to do with the blue tassels. On the ends of the tallit, which is a device to reproduce the tabernacle of Moses. So that's how we go. Obviously, solving the meanings of the blue tassels... Or solving the meanings of blue. Just blue. Let's break it in half. Blue? got to figure out what blue means. Why blue? Why not a red tassel? Why not a gold tassel? It's not. It's blue. Why did God pick blue? And what blue did he mean? How did you get the blue? Those of you who were around when I did this uh, 15 years ago, none of you were here. All those people have since uh, decided they had enough. But figure out the blue. And then figure out why tassels. Those tassels have great significance. That's going to lead us to the nature of the evil that was intended by these two men. So let me put them together. I have the gatherer. Gatherer. And my lovely Lori would like me to tell everybody that I am aware that I need a haircut. She said, as soon as you turn around like this, they're going to see that you need a haircut. You're right. I was sick. I don't like getting haircuts when I'm sick. I'll get a haircut soon. Soon is a relative term. Gatherer. Okay? Rebellious son. Ooh. Look at that word. Rebel. That's fascinating. Both of these guys have something explained about them with the blue tassels. So there we go gatherer and the rebel. Why did God say, i got to stop them? How many were they going to kill? Who were they after? Probably before we return to the list of Deuteronomy 22, which we'll do next week, we should read a piece of the New Testament. There's always a New Testament compliment or answer to an Old Testament problem. So we're going to read that. Christ himself uh, references Deuteronomy 22. A couple weeks ago, he did it at 11.28 when we talked about the ox and the sheep that had fallen, I'm sorry, the ox and the donkey that had fallen, the heavy laden, uh, Matthew 11.28. He says, come to me, my yoke is light. That's a De- uh, Deuteronomy 22.4 reference. But foremost, in my opinion, the connection to Deuteronomy 22, and therefore Numbers 15:38 through 39, is Matthew 9.20. Uh, through twenty two, Mark five, twenty five through thirty four, and Luke eight, forty one through fifty six. This is the woman bleeding for twelve years. So I have I have the bleeding woman, I'm going to call her twelve year woman. But Christ does not call her the woman. What does he call her? He calls her daughter. So I'm going to call her the twelve daughter." And actually, I'm going to call her the first twelve daughter, because she's followed by here's a mathematical insight that you don't get anywhere else. She's followed first is followed by second. The second twelve daughter, I have two daughters. Both of them have that 12 attached to them and they're side by side. So, can't read it all. She's bleeding for 12 years. The resurrected daughter of the ruler of the synagogue happens to be 12 years old. So, I have two daughters. two twelve two 12 daughters, if you will. Can't read all three passages. You would all just run and never come back like everybody else has. So, we will just try one of them knowing that uh, we're leaving out a lot this week. So here we go. I will start 8.41 of Luke. And behold, whenever you see the word behold, oh my goodness, something amazing is going to happen. I can't do it justice. Behold, so he's about to give you some incredible information. And by the way, it's going to explain the guy gathering wood and the rebellious son. That is amazing. Those are two mysteries in the Bible that I think are hardly ever discerned. And behold, there came a man named Jairus, and he was the ruler of the synagogue. It says the ruler in Matthew and in uh, uh, Mark. So we'll get that next week. And he fell down. And by the way, when you see a ruler, ooh, that, that word has some implications. Doesn't it? How many times have I said, by the way, by the way? I think I'm up to at least four or five. I'm going to give myself five. Trying to break that habit, by the way. So far, not so good. Behold, there came a man named Jarias, and he was the ruler of the synagogue. Think about this. And he fell down at Jesus's feet and begged him to come to his house. Now, is that typical for a Levite, probably a Pharisee, to do that? I would say no, for he had an only daughter about twelve years of age, and she was dying. And as he went, the multitude this is a Levite Pharisee, in all likelihood—the ruler of the synagogue is. Only hope to save his daughter is somebody up to this point he's hated and tried to kill. Consider that, if I'm correct. But as he went, the multitudes thronged him. So Christ is being pressured by a multitude, thousands and thousands of people. Now, a woman having a flow of blood for 12 years. Not a coincidence. 12-year-old daughter, 12 year The life of the daughter corresponds to the time of the bleeding in this woman. Who had spent all her livelihood on physicians and could not be healed by any. There's a lesson for you. How many of these guys are going to solve death? Came from behind and touched the border of his garment. She touched, if you go to Mark. And Luke, I'm sorry, Mark and Matthew, you will find that she touched the blue tassels. And that's what her plan was. She came from behind. God, through that multitude, touched the borders of his garment, and immediately her flow of blood stopped. And Jesus, omniscient God, who knows everything, asks this question. Who touched me? Does he know the answer? Please answer. Yes, he does. And if you think he doesn't know the answer, get your hammer and start hitting yourself. He's omniscient God. When all denied it, all means all. Peter and those with him said, Master, the multitudes throng uh, and press you, and you say, who touched me? He's saying, everybody's touching you. Christ isn't asking who touched him. Figure out what his question really is. But Jesus said, somebody touched me, for I perceived power going out from me. Oh, did he feel a tingle? Goosebumps? This is God. What's he really mean? Do not. Think like you. Try to think how, what he really means. Next week we'll solve that, I hope. Now, when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling and falling down before him. So now I've got two people, a woman, and Jarius both fell down before him, right? She declared to him in the presence of all the people the reason she had touched him and how she was healed immediately. And he said to her, daughter, be of good cheer. Your faith has made you well. While he was still speaking, someone came from the ruler of the synagogue's house saying to him, your daughter is dead. Hey, two daughters, right? Do not trouble the teacher. But when Jesus heard it, he answered him saying, do not be afraid. Only believe that she will be made well. Believe what? If you think, believe that she'll be healed, is that what you're thinking? What does Christ always want you to believe? He wants you to believe that he is God come to save you. When he came into the house, he permitted no one to go in except Peter, James, and John. That's very important. Talk about that next week. And the father and mother of the girl. Now, all wept and mourned for her. There were mourners everywhere, by the way. We get that from the other text, playing flutes. But he said, do not weep. She is not dead, but sleeping. And they ridiculed God. Now, that is as dumb as you can get. God is defining for you what he thinks death is. And he's right because he knows. And you ridicule him. You say death is not what you think it is. In the case of this girl, it's not permanent, is it? There is a permanent death. It is the second death. It does not mean you lose existence, however. It's your destination, your destiny. Don't ridicule God for what he says is the definition of death. But they did. But he put them all outside, took her by the hand, and called, little girl, arise. Now, I'm going to take... I'm going to take umbrage with that. I do not believe that's what he said. If you go to Mark, it says something completely different. We'll get to that in just a second. And he commanded that she be given something to eat. Why did he do that? What did he want her to eat? Give her a hamburger? Hey, she looks a little hungry. She's been dead. How about a pizza? This is God. And her parents were astonished, and he charged them to tell no one. Okay? Obviously, this is a blue tassel event. That first woman, that first daughter, he calls her daughter, decides she's going to grab that fur, that, the bleeding daughter, if you will, desperate to live, battles her way through the multitude to grab the blue tassel of Christ. She knows she's got to put her hand on that blue tassel. Why did she know that? Questions pour out, don't they? By combining the accounts of Matthew 9, 18 through 22, and Luke 8, and Mark 5, 24 through 43, we know something very important. Matthew 9, 21, for she said to herself, this is her thoughts, she thought these things. If only I may touch his blue tassels. Garment, but it's clearly the blue tassels. I shall be made well. Luke 8:44 says the border of his garment. That's the blue tassel. The blue tassels are the border. Back we are now. Deuteronomy 22, Numbers 15. Rebellious son and gatherer of wood on the Sabbath. Why is he doing this? How did she connect her bleeding, death by bleeding? She's bleeding to death. Twelve years. How did she connect her bleeding with the capital fence of the man gathering wood and the rebellious son? She knew the blue tassels had something to do with her. All she had to do, fight her way through the crowd, touch that blue tassel. She's going to be healed. How did she figure that out? It says, in, uh, "Let me see if I can find it really fast." Um, here it is. But the woman, fear, fearing and trembling, knowing that she w- knowing what happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. There's a great line there. What is the whole truth on this woman? She not only told him the whole truth, she told everybody that was there the whole truth. What is the whole truth? Luke 8.47 relates that she was intending to stay hidden. She wanted to be undetected. But then God asked, who touched me? Omniscient God asked that. And she got scared. What's she afraid of? She comes forward with great fear, and she confesses the reason, the whole truth, before all the people why she went for the blue tassel. So why did she intend to remain unknown? Was she afraid of something? Of who? Of what? What did she fear? Had the multitude known who she was and her reason for touching the blue tassels, what would they do? Because she fell down and confessed in front of them what it was. Everybody now knew who she was, why she touched the blue test. Was she disguised, by the way, do you think? Absolutely she was. How come? Because she's bleeding. So that means she's unclean. I'm going to reach down and pick up this thing that fell. I was going to step on it and then what would happen? Fall down again. Yes. This woman is unclean. Anyone she touches would be considered unclean. She can't touch anybody. This is a shunned person in the unclean community. But she knew, she knew if she just touches that tassel. Not going to touch Christ, just wants that blue tassel. That God said to put on all your talits for the rest of your generations. They still do it today. She knew if she got that, she would be healed. And she went for it. She would be healed and cleansed. She would no longer be dying and she would no longer be unclean. And now we know something. We know that the talit of Christ, the blue tassels of Christ, it's called a talit. Very important. T A L I T, that thing that he's wearing that has the blue tassels. If you touch it, it makes the unclean clean. It stops the bleeding. The life is in the blood. If the blood leaves, the life life leaves. To keep life to live, the woman knew to touch the blue tassel. She figured it out. Quite the theologian, this woman. There's no excuses for the rest of you women. Look at what she figured out. It's amazing. I like to think of her, uh, this lady as the Ada Ruth Habershawn of her time. But she probably was the head of Ada. She put the meanings of the blue and the meanings of the tassels together. She figured it out. And obviously the second daughter. Let me read it Mark 5 here. Because this is what Christ says in Mark 5. The second daughter He says, then Christ took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha Kumi. Talitha Kumi. And it's always said to be, little girl arise, because this is a feminine form. But I can't get over the fact that that is Talit. So I think that, I think that it's Talit. Talit, rise. That means to me that he wrapped that little girl in the Talit. And she's in it, and that's the feminine. Talit with girl in it, arise. Kumi, certainly arise. It cannot be coincidental that God would utilize Talit subsequent to the first daughter, the first twelve daughter, touching his Talit. This shows up with Elijah and the widow, by the way. In 1 Kings 17. Christ and the ruler. Elijah and the widow. Those we'll put together next week. It seems quite likely that Christ removed the Talit and wrapped the second twelve daughter in it. Because that is what Elijah did with his mantle. When he raised that son of the widow. So this is a fulfillment of Elijah. Next week we will put it all together for you. But you should not need me. You should do it without me.